you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Proverbs uh, chapter 1, and we are going to uh, start what will hopefully be a recurring uh, summer series. In the past, we did summer psalms, and, uh, and we did that for two or three summers in a row, a selection of psalms. And, uh, and so for, for the next few summers, uh, we will do a recurring series in Proverbs. Uh, to be honest, I wanted to start Galatians. Uh, I had intended for the last six or eight weeks to uh, prayerfully start Galatians, and then I was all set to start that uh, this week, and then just thought, it's such a great book, and it builds on itself, that I would hate to, in the summer we have a third of our normal attendance, and it's a different third every week, <laughs> because so many people are out, and so many vacations, and so many, I would hate to start a a great, the Bible's all great. I don't mean it that way, but like, I would hate to start a series in one book that kind of depended step by step, thought by thought, chapter by chapter on itself. So we'll start that in September. And in the meantime, we're going to work through Proverbs. It may take us several summers uh, to get through all of Proverbs, but we're going to start with Proverbs chapter one, verses one through seven. So let me pray for us. And then, uh, and then we'll jump into that text. Lord Jesus, I uh, think about uh, David and at the end of King David's reign, uh, there was a listing of his mighty men, uh, great heroes, loyal men, courageous followers. And I was also reminded more of the beginning in, in 1 Samuel 22, when David fled by himself, it says everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was embittered in their soul all gathered to him, and he became captain over those 400 men. In many ways, that's a gathering of, uh, of a church like this, where at the beginning, we, as Paul said, we weren't the wisest, we weren't the most noble, we weren't the strongest or the best, but you gathered to yourself a people and you purchased them for yourself, for your own glory, that you might transform us into mighty men and women of faith and endurance. And so we thank you for the picture of sanctification that you brought us from far away into your family. And we exalt you. And it's a joy to sit with other beggars and other refugees and others who are in distress and in debt and embittered in soul and and others who are coming to know your grace and mercy, we just bless you, Lord Jesus, and it's an honor to be a part of your congregation, and we look forward to the day when you will come and return and unite us as one, and we long for that day. And until then, as we tarry, we pray that we would be faithful, that we would be good stewards of our time and our resources, that we would be faithfully following you and walking with you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, turn to Proverbs. We're going to look at verses one, chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Should have already been there. <clears throat> the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. 
And the one who understands obtained guidance to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs uh, we read was started by Solomon. It is uh, a genre that you need to understand, uh, a different section of Scripture that applies differently to our lives. Wisdom literature uh, comes with some understanding that it is not always binding. Think of a passage like, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he shall not depart from it. It is a general truism that doesn't specifically apply and doesn't bear itself out in every situation. Many of us have uh, no parents whose children were raised well, uh, raised in a family that knew the Lord and honored the Lord and honored the Word and, and were trained in that way, but have not uh, remained in the faith and have moved off. Um, Proverbs is a part of what's called wisdom literature, which are generally true, um, all, um, true in the sense that it's all true, but um, not always will, it, will we see the fulfillment of these passages. They are generally applicable uh, to all people. Um, the other wisdom books in this genre are the Psalms, uh, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, Song of Solomon. Those five books make up the wisdom books, and they are uh, each containing uh, wisdom and knowledge and information that will lead us to practical living. That's the purpose of them. And, and trust me, you want wisdom, okay? Um, every single one of you wants wisdom. Whether you acknowledge it or not, you want that. And so let me give you a, a working definition of wisdom. Wisdom is simply knowledge rightly applied to a situation. Wisdom is knowledge rightly applied to a situation. It's the skill of right living. Wisdom is simply knowledge rightly applied to a situation, and it's the skill of right living. The skill. It's, a, it's like a muscle. It can grow or it can atrophy. It can be exercised with the faithful application of obedience to God's Word, and your wisdom will increase with application. It's not knowledge. It contains knowledge, but just knowing more, when has knowing more ever lent to, um, to the increase in anything, right? Uh, wisdom is, or knowledge is important, but knowledge is insufficient in transformation. Um, I know how I should eat, all right? Sometimes I drive by and I drive through and then I drive through again and I don't always apply knowledge. Wisdom is not knowledge. Wisdom is knowledge applied and it's a skill in right living. It helps you make good decisions. For example, 19-year-old Gibson, um, new believer, working at a small church in Hot Springs, Arkansas. Uh, for the first four or five months of my employment there, uh, I had to drive 45 minutes to an hour away, and I had to borrow a car. I was a college guy, I didn't have a car. I had a mountain bike, but it was too far, and so I had to borrow cars every week. Sometimes I missed meetings, sometimes I was late, sometimes just a variety of issues contributed to um, my 
needing of a car. So I started to save as much as I could as a student with a part-time job, and I could only muster $400 right, over like a period of three months. And so one day, uh, I'm, I'm thinking, I drive by this car lot every time I'm driving into Hot Springs, and I see this one car, and I see the price, and I see, and so I'm just thinking about, should I buy it, should I not, should I buy it, should I not? And that happened for a couple of months, or for a couple of weeks, and then one day I'm reading in Proverbs, uh, as I'm in the habit of doing, and you probably are too, um, and, and I jot down a proverb that stuck with me that day on a card, uh, just to roll it over. I didn't know what it meant, but it just stuck out to me, and so I jot it down, I stick it in my pocket, and, and I go about my day. And later that day, maybe in the evening, I just spontaneously drive by, and I said, I'm going to stop and ask the salesman about that car. And so I did, and an hour later, I find myself in a fog about to sign a contract, right? I don't know how it happened, but just, I was driving by, interested in the car, and the next thing I know, this guy's got me in a room, and I'm ready, and he's like, I got a pen, and he says, I'll be right back. And so as he's waiting, I'm thinking, should I do this? I don't know, should I do this? And so I reach in my pocket, and I pull this out, and I read the proverb I had jotted down earlier, Proverbs 20, 25. It's a trap to dedicate something rashly, and only later to consider one's vows. I didn't understand it when I wrote it in the morning, but in this moment, I'm about to rashly dedicate and make a vow of debt you know, for seven years or six years or whatever for a college kid to buy this car. I didn't know how long my employment would last, so I just I said, i got to get out of here. So I took it off. I left. I didn't get it, but I said, Lord, I still need a car. So I had those $400, and a couple weeks later, I went home for spring break, and a relative who very rarely, if ever, gave me money came into some money and gave me $1,000. And I went to a dealership and the guy said, uh, this one is you know, 2,100, but I'll give it to you for 1,400 cash if you got it. And I happened to have 400 I saved and 400 that the Lord gifted to me and was able to make a wise choice. Wisdom is help in making good decisions. Wisdom tells you when it's time to speak and wisdom tells you when it's time to shut up. Wisdom tells you I should intervene. And wisdom also tells you I should pull back and allow this person to experience the natural consequences of their decisions. Wisdom is making a choice in a moment that you'll never regret. As I thought about that line all week, it it blew me away when I realized that Jesus probably never experienced regret. Can you imagine that? Never saying, oh, I shouldn't have ate so much, or no, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have said that. I walked in, I, should have, I was flippant in the way I spoke, I shouldn't have done that. Jesus never had a sinful regret ever. Wisdom helps us to not make decisions that we will regret. Wisdom is looking back on decisions with gratitude, saying, so glad that God led me this way, that God provided for me in this way, that... He helped me avoid a relationship that I almost jumped into, or He helped me to avoid a debt I almost got into, or a job that would have turned out badly. Wisdom gives you guidance and skill in making the right decision at the right time. Wisdom does require knowledge, all right? Uh, I had a crusty college professor that used to pray this horrible prayer uh, before we, I took three classes with him. And before every final, he would stand up and he would say, let me pray for you. And the first time I was like, yes, pray pray for me. And he said, Lord, give these students recallability. 
of everything that they have diligently studied. And I just looked up and kind of wrinkled my nose and thought, you, you jerk. That's the worst prayer I've ever heard. I want God to give me supernatural knowledge and recallability of everything that I didn't study. When I was in the dining room, like with my friends, and I should have been studying, I, wanted, I want God to recall that stuff that um, I missed. But, but wisdom requires knowledge, but it's more than just knowledge. It's knowledge applied rightly to a situation. Wisdom shows you the path you should take and the choices you should make. Wisdom acknowledges that you should trust the one who sees further down the road than you do. But to possess wisdom also acknowledges that you don't currently possess it. Uh, You're not the source of wisdom. Uh, I doubt any of us wake up and open our door and see a line of people who are just asking our advice. Hey, would you tell me? We're paying us for our counsel or our advisory. Wisdom acknowledges that we're dependent. You need God to show you the way. You're not the fount of wisdom. You need Him to show you the next step and to light the path ahead of you. Wisdom blends perfectly with a faith relationship with God. You can't have wisdom outside of an intimacy with God. Uh, You want wisdom. If you died today or sometime, I don't know why we always say today or tonight, but if you died anytime soon and someone spoke at your funeral, you would want the adjective wise attached to your name. You would want people to say things like, she walked in wisdom. She always knew the right scripture at just the right time. He always made the right choices. That person lived a life that was bathed in God's favor and provision. We want that. And I've preached those funerals and they're glorious. I've also been to other funerals where the opposite is said. Everything he did was questionable. Regrettable. She just couldn't get out of her own way. His life was marked by bad choice after bad choice after bad choice. And in his wake was a destructive and damaging past. I've been to those too. So the main thing I want to get across to you today is get wisdom, get wisdom, get wisdom. And get it by understanding the fear of the Lord. So let's get back into the text. Chapter 1, verse 1 says it's the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. Uh, Solomon is in the line of Ruth, of course, and in the line of David, so it kind of connects with where we've been all summer. But if you didn't know uh, about Solomon, if you flip backward in your Bible to 1 Kings, uh, flip five or six books backward to 1 Kings, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, goes in reverse of alphabetical order. It's kind of how I memorize that. Um, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles. In 1 Samuel, I mean, sorry, in 1 Kings chapter 3, we hear this about Solomon. 1 Kings chapter 3, Solomon loved the Lord. Walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high, high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask, what 
I shall give you. Now listen, I don't know of another person that God has asked this question to. Okay? He's never asked me this. Gibson, what do you want? What is, it, what is it I can do for you? Like a genie in a bottle kind of question. But he asked this of Solomon. Can you imagine? Ask what I shall give you. Listen to Solomon's response in verses 6 through 9. And Solomon said, You've shown great and steadfast love to David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and an uprightness of heart toward you. You have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And, and now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father. Although I am just a little child, I don't know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted. So here's his answer to God's question. What do you want? Solomon answers, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind. Govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this great people? Your great people. And it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this, and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but you have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before and none like you shall arise after you. And then I give you also what you didn't ask for, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall ever compare to you all your days. And if you walk with me in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream, and he came before Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant and the Lord, and he offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast. There's some examples of Solomon's wisdom in the next couple of verses, but turn over to chapter 4, verse 29. A summary of Solomon's wisdom. And God gave Solomon, chapter 4, verse 29, 1 Kings 4, 29, and God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure, and a breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east, and all the people, all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all other men. Wiser than Ethan the Ezraite. I read that and I'm like, I don't even know who Ethan is, but the writer of this writes it like I should know. Oh, he's wiser than Ethan. Wow. He's wiser than e- He-Man and Kalkal and Darda and the sons of Mahal. I don't even know who these people are. But he's wiser than all those guys. And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 Proverbs. We don't have 3,000 of Solomon's Proverbs in the book of Proverbs, but he wrote more. He wrote 1,005 songs. We don't have that many of Solomon's songs. He, we just have a tiny selection of all that Solomon did. But listen to what else he did. Verse 32, uh, in addition to this, the Proverbs and the songs, verse 33, he spoke of trees, from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And the people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Solomon was endowed with this great wisdom, showing his great connection to God, his great relationship with God. But finally about Solomon is that this was a royal wisdom 
the royal wisdom. In Proverbs 8, verses 15 through 16, it says, By me, wisdom, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule and nobles, all who govern justly. Wisdom is required of government officials, just like today, right? Right? All of our government officials, right? I know you agree with that. Um, Wisdom is for kings and rulers, but it's more than just for kings and rulers. Immediately in this verse, wisdom is connected to the messianic reign of Jesus. Son of David is a messianic title, right? Remember the beggar on the road in Jericho? Son of David, have mercy. Who's he talking to? He's talking to Jesus. So Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, um, reigns with wisdom, asks for wisdom, is the wisest person ever, but this points forward and overshadows Jesus. Shadows Jesus is a shadow of him to come. The messianic rule would be a messianic rule from the line of David. That's 2 Samuel 7. A messianic line, a a leader would come out of David and he would be a wise ruler according to Isaiah 11, 1 through 5. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. That's David's dad, Jesse. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. You see that connection? Jesus would rule and reign fulfilling the Solomonic wisdom in his own kingdom. What does it have to do with us? This is just the first verse. We still have a few more to go. So I don't want you to feel like I'm winding down. I'm just kind of winding up actually. But what does this mean for us? When Christ returns, we're told that we're going to rule with him. When Jesus returns, we're told that he's going to come and lead and rule and that we will be a part of his government. We will be a part of that, which means that it is for us to acquire wisdom. It's for us to acquire wisdom. It's us, for us to grow in this, to live an unregrettable life, a life connected to faith and fear of God. So let's get to that. Uh, verse 2. And three, verse two through four here, um, he gives us some infinitives. Solomon's purpose is action-oriented, not passive. To know, to receive, to give, to understand. This is uh, action words. Uh, To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. See the purpose here? Those should be buzzwords in our culture, right? Righteousness, justice, and equity. This isn't a new topic for us in America in the 21st century. This is an issue relating to godly wisdom that if you want to um, understand justice and righteousness and equity, um, you must possess the wisdom that Solomon is describing here. And it's, it reminds us in these three verses that it's like going to college or seminary or receiving some sort of an apprenticeship in a trade or skill And that this isn't just passively clocking in and going about a passive day. There is a rigorous, sharp demand for focus and attention and a willingness to absorb information. Solomon is painting a picture of a serious student. Look at verses 5 through 6. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. Let the one who understands obtain guidance to understand a proverb and a saying and the words of the wise and their riddles. Um, two, two observations about these two verses. The first one is let. 
Let the wise hear. Let the one who understands. Let the one understand a proverb. Let is just an open word. Meaning that wisdom is open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, Have you ever walked, uh, hurried, and parked your car, ran up to a a door, and you expected that opening thing to open, and it doesn't, and you run into the doorway because you missed the opening? Um, Wisdom is not like that. The beauty of wisdom's invitation, it's open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and you're not limited if you're rich or poor, single, married, teenager, adult, senior adult, racial background, ethnicity, country of origin. None of those things matter. Wisdom invites you and says, come right in. Let you come in. The doors are wide open. You can, anybody can come. You're all invited. The second aspect of verses 5 and 6 that I want to bring out is there's a key ingredient to the recipe of wisdom. If you want to be wise, the key, one key ingredient is teachability. Teachability is a key ingredient. And you know the opposite of this. A fool says this all the time. You try to show them something, I already know, I, I know, I know. I already know how to do that. A, a, a fool just rebuffs any instruction. I, I already know. I got this. You don't, I don't need to learn anything from you. A fool is constantly saying, I already know that. I already know how to do this. I already know how to do that. Have you ever met people like that? You try to, you try to show them a new thing that you know they have no idea how it works, and they say, I, I already know that. I know how this. They're always telling you what they already know. This is not how the wise reacts. The wise person is teachable. One of my favorite uh, Bible teachers was a guy named Tom Nelson. Uh, He used to teach a a college and career night called Metro in Dallas. And we would, I would drive down from Oklahoma City uh, every Monday night. And there's five to six, seven thousand students and college kids and uh, singles um, through 30 or so that would come to this group called Metro. And he, he recalls this one particular time where he could see a group of girls walking down at the end of the Bible study and coming into like the the, uh, the you know next up position the the batter's box but the uh, the holding you know the the warm up circle over there and he's talking to some people and he could see that they're really eager to talk to him so he deals with these people and he goes over to them and he says now what what's got you guys all um, concerned here and they said we need you to settle a debate for us we're trying to decide what's the number one quality that we should look for in a spouse and he said that's a great question. What are some of your ideas? And they were saying, you know, educated or uh, good looking or earning potential or family or godliness or faith. It's a variety of people, not all believers in this Bible study. And so he said, those are all good, some of them. But, but after thinking about it for a while, he said, the most important quality that you should look for in a future spouse, a baseline quality is teachability. Teachability signals a humility. Teachability signals humility that uh, I'm not God and other people have experiential knowledge that I should heed and listen to. A humility that says, I don't know it all. Teachability signals reality. The reality is I don't actually know it all. And teachability signals a hunger for learning. Paul in prison at the end of his life says, hey, tell Titus to bring the cloak and to make sure he brings all the parchments. At the end of his life, the only person who didn't need to keep learning was Paul. He wrote most of the New Testament, but at the end he says, make sure you bring the books. I just need to, re- I need to study more. He had a hunger for learning and a willingness to grow. 
Uh, immediately, um, I thought of and put my, in my notes here, Cherie and Keith, because uh, they're just an example to me of having a hunger for learning. If you don't know them, I, I, I work with Cherie, and she's our administrator, and Keith, um, Keith is a wonderful husband because he reads to his wife. She's, he's, the, he's like my app uh, audible, right? Cherie, Keith brings Cherie breakfast in bed and he reads her books. This is amazing, right? And every week I'm learning, what are you guys reading? And they're always reading new books and they're always learning together. And a year ago when she was teaching Romans, um, she, Cherie hasn't gone to seminary, but I, I said, all right, I'll order you some commentary. I ordered her moo, right? I ordered her some, some hard hitters when it came to Romans, and she just absorbed it and was learning and growing. There was just a hunger for knowledge and learning uh, that, that reminds me of this, of teachability. Teachability is a quality you should strive for in your pursuit of wisdom. Let's get to the last verse. Verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now, Proverbs starts in chapter 1. That's the dumbest thing I've ever said. Maybe. Uh, sorry. Uh, the introduction is Proverbs 1, and chapter 9 is the end of the introduction. So the introduction has seven sections. Chapters 10 through 24 make up a few different sections. There are all these sections in there, but 1 through 9 is all the introduction. It's just an introduction to Proverbs and to wisdom. The, Proverbs 9.10 says the same as Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So let's understand this. So if you're going to be a wise person, if you're going to go on a quest for knowledge and wisdom and discernment and all these things, the fear of the Lord is where you start. It says it's the beginning, and it's a foundation that endures, not a place of departure. You get that? Sometimes you start someplace and that's totally not where you end up. Math, one plus one is two, right? I think uh, that's where you start, but then you also move on later into further, higher kinds of things. It's a place of starting, but not a, a place where you end. But, but look at Ecclesiastes. Flip over a book to the right. If Proverbs is Solomon as an optimistic kind of young king with a young son and he's training up full of wisdom and he's teaching uh, and he's you know at the beginning Ecclesiastes is a crusty old cynical you know Solomon who says everything is worthless everything is meaningless nothing has meaning at all um, it's the culmination of all the wisdom and life and experience that he's lived but even in the end Proverbs chapter Ecclesiastes chapter 12 In Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13, Solomon writes, The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So the fear of God is the beginning and the end. It's the foundation so it's important for us to understand what the fear of God means. What does it mean to fear God? Let's answer that. First, let's answer what the fool is. Because the fool is the unteachable one who despises wisdom and instruction. The fool is basically the unbeliever. 
It has nothing to do with mental capacity. It's not the village idiot. It's not the the person who didn't pass a certain grade or whatever. You could be um, book smart or not. You could be educated or not. Fool does not represent your highest grade completed. That's not what fool means. Fool represents... Someone with a limited education can be described as absolutely wise. Think of a Stephen Hawking who was at the highest astrophysicist but denied the existence of God, absolutely biblically categorized as a fool. Psalm 53.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable wickedness and iniquity. There is no one who does good. That's a description of the fool. So what's the opposite? What does it mean to fear God? To fear God is actually to love Him and to take Him seriously. Maybe helpful to say the opposite. To not fear God is to ignore or minimize or walk as a practical atheist. To not fear God is to ignore or minimize or walk as a practical atheist. You can say I'm a Christian, but if you never pray, if you never read your Bible, if you never acknowledge God, if you never have a thought toward God during the week, if you live as though He is of no consequence now or eternally, that is the opposite of fearing the Lord. To not fear the Lord, number two, is to downgrade the Bible and upgrade the culture to downgrade the Bible, and to upgrade the culture. Another way of saying that is to trust popular opinion over established truth. There are really uh, two worldviews in mind here. One worldview says what's new is best. What's, What's now is better. And according to that worldview, the Bible is outdated, and it's just old stuff, and it had meaning back then for those guys way back there. But we've developed and we have so much more knowledge and what's new and what's now is best that's one worldview the biblical worldview says what's true is timeless what was true back then 3,000 years ago when Solomon was writing this what was true for Abraham Isaac and Jacob what was true for Adam and Eve what was true in the days of Noah that truth abides and is timeless and is always relevant what's new is not better. A new truth can't be a real truth. So those are two opposing worldviews. And to not fear the Lord is to downgrade the Bible and to upgrade the culture and say, I trust what's now and what's popular today over what was then. A third way to not fear the Lord, number one, ignore, minimize, or walk as a practical atheist. Number two, downgrade the Bible, upgrade the culture. And number three is to reduce God however you choose to define him. God is a, he's just a spirit. Uh, God is just a sleepy kind of grandpa that, you know, is always ready to kind of be there, but he's mostly disconnected and napping. God is a myth. God is a crutch. God is a tool to control the masses, an opiate or whatever. All those things are to not fear the Lord. So if we're going to fear the Lord, it's essentially this, to take him seriously and to take his word seriously and to express faith in him in all situations. You're going to fear God. You're going to believe him. It's faith mixed in with reverence and awe and worship. 
It's all those things. So let's, let's slice it even further because some people would mix fear of God with terror of God. Terror and fear. Let me, let me show you the difference between terror and fear. If someone has a terror of God, it's typically a sinner with a guilty conscience who seeks to escape God because of the terror and shame and repercussion and the settling sense of guilt for their actions. They understand that God is a consuming fire, according to Hebrews. They understand that in Psalms, God is a God of anger and wrath who demonstrates His wrath daily. They see God as an angry judge. The one who has a guilty conscience, a conscience that feels shame or feels guilt or doesn't have their sin dealt with, their understanding of God is terror. Terror that drives them away from God. A guilty conscience causes sinners to hide like Adam and Eve in the garden and to cover themselves. They view Him as angry, violent, vengeful, and they want nothing to do with the terror of God. But the redeemed, to the redeemed, Jesus has removed our guilt. And to the redeemed, we are forgiven. And it removes our guilty conscience far from us. And we've received grace and we've been made new. And so the line of demarcation between fear and terror is what you do with the cross. Amen? The righteous run to Him. He's a strong tower. The righteous hide under the shadow of the wings of the Almighty. He is a refuge, a safe place. Um, in, in the words of Hebrews, we can approach the throne of grace with confidence, knowing that we're going to receive mercy and grace. The Spirit within us cries out, Abba, Father. We know we've been adopted into His family, and so we, we have a fear of God in the sense that we reverence Him and we're in awe of Him and we worship Him, but it's not a terror. Why? Because at the cross, Jesus dealt with our sin and our guilt and our condemnation. Because of that, we can walk in the fear of God, which also is the love of God, which also is the seriousness of a relationship with God because He's removed our guilt. He's taken it as far as the east is from the west. He's cast our sin to the bottom of the sea. You say, well, is He scary though? Um, uh, yes, He's completely scary. <laughs> he's not like us. He's not us. We don't understand Him. His ways are not our ways. He's overwhelmingly good when we expect overwhelmingly bad, but he's also sheer terror to those who oppose him. He is just and truthful and wrathful. He is punisher of the guilty. He is kind and merciful at the same time. And because of all of those things, we struggle to cope with him or to manage him or to compartmentalize who he is. He wants all or nothing of us, and He judges purely and strictly according to His own goodness and guidelines. He won't be manipulated. He won't be persuaded. He won't be changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not on some mystic journey to discover Himself. He's not evolving or changing. All of His attributes are His to the fullest. He's not growing in grace. He's the fullest measure of grace. 
He's not growing in love. He is love. He, none of his attributes are in process. He is the extent of all of his attributes. One thing that gripped me this week is that in every way, God is self-reliant. He, he doesn't require oxygen. He doesn't require that. He doesn't require water or food or sleep. He does, he's completely self-reliant. He can float in space if he wants to. He doesn't even need all that. He can do whatever he wants because he is um, other than us. And that's terrifying to us. But those who have come to know him know that we can run to him because he's a safe place, because he's overwhelmingly good. For the redeemed, he's more than just approachable. He's a good father that we can come into his presence with confidence. So let's close uh, with this application. The question you might have is, well, how do I get wisdom? Well, now that you know the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, fear equaling faith and love for God, fear of God is the beginning, how do we get wisdom? James chapter 1 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. James 1, 5 through 8. You want wisdom? If you're in Christ, if you have faith and you fear God, ask for it. Seek it. Pursue it is what the, uh, the rest of Proverbs would tell us. Search for it. Ask for treasure. Pray for it and ask for it is what James says. But James also says, let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not suppose they will receive anything from the Lord, for that person is double-minded and unstable in all his ways. So you can't divorce wisdom from faith. Those two, you can't pull those apart. Think about the pursuit of knowledge in some of our educational institutions. Harvard, uh, in its charter, said that... Uh, uh, you should seek God as the source of wisdom in Jesus Christ and faith in Him alone. And how far has Harvard drifted from that mission statement, right? You can't divorce faith from knowledge or you will be unstable, double-minded in all your ways. Faith is critical. You can't divorce your faith from wisdom. Wisdom isn't just book smarts and information. It is a blend of walking by faith with wisdom embodied in Jesus Christ. Abram believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. The just shall live by faith. It's by grace that you've been saved through faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Faith and wisdom walk hand in hand. So if you want wisdom, the fear of God is the beginning. James says, ask and pray, believe, and then saturate yourself with biblical knowledge. Saturating. One of the most enjoyable people to be around is the one who's constantly saying, the Bible says, did you know in Scripture, oh, I read this the other day in the Bible. Oh, this. I love it when you poke somebody and Bible just oozes out, right? <laughs> They're just so saturated. It's a sponge that when you squeeze a sponge and you plunge it in water and you release it in the water, it absorbs all that water. You can pick that sponge up and squeeze it and it just drips out. Some of us are like a dry sponge just sat on top of the water and no Bible is in our language at all. The one who I love being around, the one who just 
plunges themselves deep in the Word and absorbs it. And whenever you touch any part of their life, just, oh, that reminds me of this verse. Oh, that reminds me of this passage. Oh, I love it when the Word says this. And, oh, I saw Jesus in this passage and I'd never seen that before. Saturate yourself with biblical knowledge as you walk in faith, as you pray and ask. And then the, the greatest aspect of wisdom is the application. It's the application of it. Jesus said the wise man did what? Built his house on, on the rock. And the rock is the one that applies the word. It doesn't just, as James said, looks at himself and goes away and forgets what he looks like by not applying what he knows. And so Lord Jesus, would you give us wisdom? I pray that it would be said of this congregation, oh my goodness, there are some wise people in that church. People who have saturated themselves in faith, in the fear of the Lord, in walking in such a way that their life is a testimony to great decision-making and to great advice-giving and to a life that is free of regret, free of uh, worry and fear in a worldly sense, but is filled with faith and confidence that can laugh at the days to come. Would you give us a heart of wisdom that we may number our days and that we may pursue you in them? that we may walk with you in that time. And in such a way, it could be said of all of us that they drink deeply uh, from the well of wisdom. I pray, Lord, that you would make that so in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.